I've been setting my alarm and trying to get up a little bit earlier, about an hour earlier these days. I kind of like the quiet and the calm, and I like the peace and the time to think and the time to read and the time to pray. It's a little jump on the day. I'm able to get a few things done. My body doesn't like it, and most days when the alarm goes off, I am very tempted to hit the snooze button. And then I remind myself, I say, you know, the early bird gets the worm, and my body answers back and says, yeah, but the second mouse gets the cheese. <laughs> the early bird gets the worm, the second mouse gets the cheese. Both of those are true, and they are contradictory, and that's, that's just the reality of life. We see contradictions. <laughs> Sometimes we are the contradiction. In that book that everybody likes to reference, 1984 by George Orwell, he coined a term doublethink. Doublethink is the power of holding two contradictory beliefs in one's mind simultaneously and accepting both of them as true. The early bird gets the worm. The second mouse gets the cheese, but it goes way beyond that, doesn't it? We see, we see contradictions every day. We see contradictions in politics. We see contradictions in, in our world situation. We, we see contradictions in medical advice. We see contradictions in that tension between personal responsibility and freedom. And some people are perfectly happy with their contradictions. They don't even see the contradictions. You know, George Orwell may have coined the term, but the Bible recognized the reality of doublethink long before Orwell ever coined the term, thousands of years, that we like to say that the Bible has no contradictions. We like to say the Bible has no contradictions, but there is one glaring contradiction in the book of Proverbs. Uh, it is there, it is huge, it is obvious, and it is there on purpose. Like all Proverbs, this contradiction is there to teach us something, to teach us a lesson that we truly need. You find it in Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. If you're following along in those blue Bibles, it's on page 547. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Two Proverbs today, as we close out our summer series on the book of Proverbs. Two Proverbs today. Two Proverbs side by side in your Bible. I want to look at them separately, and I want to look at them together. So look, at, look at verse 4, Proverbs 26, verse 4. It says, Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Oh, you've seen this one. You know this one. You hear someone say something foolish. You hear something, someone say something contradictory, some, some double think, and something that they've, they've not thought through. And the advice is, do not reply to that person in kind. Do not say something foolish back, because if you do, you're just going to be lumped in with that person. And then we come to verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. You've seen this. Somebody says something foolish, somebody says something that's just wrong, and so you answer them back with something even more 
foolish. You, you, you show them their absurdity by being even more absurd yourself because that's how you win. But wait a minute. Look at those two verses. Verse 4, answer not a fool according to his folly. Verse 5, answer a fool according to his folly. They contradict each other. There's a contradiction. Does God know about this? <laughs> yeah, he knows all about that contradiction right there. So what's the point? What is the point here? Well, you already know what the point is because you've been there. You've been frustrated trying to reason with some people and you have tried and tried. You've pulled your hair out only, <laughs> you pulled your hair out only to realize sometimes you just can't win. When it comes to talking to some people, sometimes you just can't win. And so here it is, a contradiction in your Bible, a totally self-aware contradiction, because the only way that you and I will learn the futility of dealing with absurdity is for the Bible to be even more absurd than us. The Bible just outfooled the fool. The Bible just outcrazied the craziest of the crazies. And all to make one huge point. Here we are, five chapters away from the end of the book of Proverbs, a book that has been devoted to pursuing wisdom and knowledge, and the Bible has just confessed there are some people you just can't win with. Don't waste your breath because you can't win. And the sooner or later, the sooner that you and I realize that, the sooner you and I can go on living happy, healthy, productive members, uh, productive lives in society. Jesus says pretty much the same thing. Matthew chapter 7. If anyone knows, if, if you encounter someone that has never read the Bible, they will at least be able to tell you one thing that Jesus said. Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. Jesus says, judge not, lest you be judged, for with the judgment you use, it will be judged against you. And they will point out to you that Jesus said, you're not allowed to judge other people. That you're not allowed to judge somebody for what they've done, who they are, what they're all about. You're not allowed to judge them. That's even the passage where Jesus says, don't you dare try to help somebody with a speck in their eye when you've got a whole log sticking out of your eye. And then one verse later in Matthew 7, Jesus says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Did Jesus just tell us not to judge? Yeah. Did he just turn around and say, some people are like dogs and some people are like pigs? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did. But the point is not to identify the swine among you. The point is to warn you, don't waste your time. This is a lesson we desperately need today. There are a lot of foolish things being said in our world today. There's a lot of foolishness in the news. There's a lot of foolishness on social media. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to something, I've read something, I've seen something that someone has posted, and I've thought to myself, I've wondered, did you really think this through only to know what the answer is? No, didn't think that through. Didn't think about that. Answer not, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. I heard someone once say that the next time, every now and then you encounter somebody who thinks that the moon landings were faked. The physicist sitting back there, he could tell you all about that. Somebody will, will tell you, and a, and a chemist who could tell you all about the rockets, I'm sure. Every now and then you'll encounter somebody who thinks that the moon landings were faked. 
And he said, here's what you do. When, the, when they say that the moon landings are faked, you respond and you say, you mean you're one of those people that still believes in the moon? You, you think the moon's real? He says, it won't, you won't get ahead. It won't change their mind, but it just might confuse them for a little bit. And you might feel a little bit better yourself. The reality is, not every issue requires your time. Not every issue requires your attention. Not every post requires your response. You know, the Apostle Paul says as much. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 23, Paul writes this, Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. <laughs> Let me repeat that. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. In other words, your response won't solve the problem. Your response won't fix the issue. You will not change their minds. The only thing you're going to do is make them dig in and hold their opinion tighter. Proverbs 26, verse 4 gives you permission to give up, to save your breath, and to lower your blood pressure. Sometimes you just can't win. And it's not that you just can't win. It becomes something more personal than that. Because this is about who you are before God. This is about who God has called you to be. And these Proverbs together tell us, don't lower your standard. Don't lower yourself to the standards of others. I take a little too much pleasure in sarcasm. Wait a minute, I don't mean to say that. What I mean to say is, I hate sarcasm. Okay, i never sarcastic. Sarcasm can be an effective means of communication among friends who, who know the tone of your voice, who know what your tone is normally like. Sarcasm does not tra translate well into writing. That's a lesson I'm still learning, okay? <laughs> I got that one down yet. But sarcasm does not translate well into writing. It works best with people who know your tone of voice. Responding to the ridiculous with something even more ridiculous seldom works. Don't lower yourself to the standards of others. I want you to hear the sarcasm. There's a tinge of sarcasm in verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. The, the proverb is encouraging us to respond in kind. But the promise isn't that you're going to win the argument. The promise is not that you're going to make a point. The promise is you're going to point out the foolishness. We see Jesus doing this, by the way. Jesus was a master of this. And, and there's several times when Jesus is teaching in, in the Gospels that we need to hear the sarcasm in his voice. Luke, or Mark, Mark chapter 5, 7, my goodness, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, a priest comes to Jesus and he says, by whose authority are you teaching these things? He asked Jesus, whose authority are you teaching these things? And Jesus says to him, well, let me ask you a question. Where did John's baptism come from? Was it from heaven or was it from man? And the priests kind of confer together. And they say, well, you know, if we say it was from heaven, then he's going to say, well, then why didn't you accept it? Because we didn't accept John. But if we say it's from man, well, all the people, they love John and they'll be against us if we say that it was just from man. And so finally they come back to Jesus after their huddle and they just say, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus says, well, I'm not going to tell you. 
I'm not going to tell you by what authority I teach these things. It wasn't worth the hassle. He wouldn't lower himself to their standards. A couple of weeks ago, someone sent me a video. People do that every now and then. A video of a, of a street preacher who had taken... This, this person goes out on the street, preaches the gospel, preaches the good news of Jesus. But he had taken a very familiar scripture and twisted it to mean something that scripture never meant, never could mean. And I watched it and I thought, oh my goodness, look what he's done. And so I took the opportunity to fire off a response to the video. I may have been a little sarcastic, but I wanted to give him something to think about. <laughs> and, then, and then I looked at his other videos. And I realized that think about was going to be a bit of a stretch for this person. <laughs> his number one video on his, on his site where he posted stuff, his number one video was all about why, why he knows that the earth is flat. And if you're a Christian, you have to believe the earth is flat also. And I realized then that there was no way I was going to try to be, I was going to be able to be reasonable with this Person. I realized I was wasting my time. There was no way I was going to reason him out of his view. Paul writes in Titus chapter 3, verse 9, avoid foolish controversies. <laughs> the earth is not flat, by the way. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. I want you to hear the frustration in what Paul has just said there. They are unprofitable and they are worthless. In other words, you're never going to get ahead. You're never going to gain something from this kind of an argument because it is unprofitable. You cannot come out the winner because there is nothing to win. You cannot reason a person out of a position that they were never reasoned into, right? You cannot reason someone out of a position that they did not get reasoned into. The only hope thing that you can do is hope to keep your sanity, find another way, find a better way. And the fact is, you and I are not here to win every argument. That's not the goal. We're not here to win every argument. Our job is not to point out to others just how foolish they are. Jesus demands something better from us. Some people cannot hear your words. Some people cannot hear your words. Make sure they see Christ in your character. Make sure they see Jesus. Jesus never said, they will know you are Christians by the way you win arguments, did he? Now, he said, all men will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. Thank you. By the way you love one another. We live in a day when everyone wants to argue, everyone wants to be heard, and some of the things that we hear are very foolish. Can we rise above that and simply show these people the love of Jesus? There are some people who will never think like us, who will never agree with us, Jesus calls us to love those people anyway. Make sure they see his character in you. I really think the person who knew this better than anyone else was the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul uh, recognized that the, to the world, the, the cross sounded 
like foolishness. And he embraced that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ. Paul laid down everything he had in and of himself, his intellect, his position, his authority as a Pharisee, his wisdom, and he gave himself completely over to what Jesus did on the cross, the foolishness of the cross. He offered everyone the grace that had been shown to him, the grace that saved him. Ah, oh, but we love to argue. <laughs> we, we love to argue. We love to point out the foolishness to others. And sometimes we even love to respond in kind. We hit the reply button on our computer and type up a response, or we start our mouth running with a, with a response. We answer the fool according to his folly, and we end up looking like fools ourselves. There's no promise in that. There's no grace in that. There's no redemption in that. It does very little for our own frustration. There has got to be a better way. Of all the people to find a better way, it's Peter. <laughs> The Apostle Peter, Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, Peter says, For this is the will of God. That sounds important, by the way. Peter says, This is the will of God. We ought to pay attention to that. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. You hear that? It's not the will of God that we argue. It's not the will of God that we put other people down. It's not even the will of God that we expose their foolishness. It is the will of God, rather, that by doing good, we silence the foolishness. We expose them to the love of Jesus. We let them see his character through us. We let them know his love by the way that we love them. I think of a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield was an atheist. She was an atheist. She was also a university, secular university professor. She's an author. She was an enemy. Rosaria Butterfield was an enemy of everything Christian. And so she began, she began attending a Bible study in her neighbor's home because she wanted ammunition to use against Christians. She went to her neighbor's home for this Bible study. She found people who loved her. Despite her differences, despite her failings, she found people who encouraged her. She found a place at their dinner table. Rosaria Butterfield is now a believer. In fact, she continues to write. She's an author of a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key, all about how showing hospitality to others can transform them. The way we care for others can bring a transformation and bring healing into their lives. I think about a man named Caleb Kaltenbach. Caleb was raised by a lesbian mother and her girlfriend and his gay father. His parents had divorced when he was very young, and he was split between both of those households, a, a, a lesbian mother and her girlfriend and, and his father, and a, a gay man. They taught him, those parents taught him, Caleb, you have to understand, Christians hate people like us. Christians hate people like us. And so as a high school student, Caleb went to a Bible study because he was going to be, he said he was going to be a ninja and he was going to be a ninja and sneak in there and he was going to learn all the Christian secrets just to throw them back in their face and prove that they were wrong about everything. And instead, Caleb found a place where he was loved, where he was welcomed. He found people that cared about him. Within a matter of weeks, Caleb gave his life to Jesus Christ and was baptized Within a matter of months, he went to camp 
went to a church camp and devoted his life to the ministry. Caleb is now ministering today. Caleb leads churches and guides individuals in that tension between messy grace and messy truth. We could spend the rest of our lives in the book of Proverbs. We could go beyond the summer and spend the rest of our lives in the book of Proverbs. We could continue to do that thing where you take a chapter a day and read through a chapter a day every day for a month, and then at the end of the month you've read the entire book. And we could do that month after month after month, and there would still be wisdom that is outside of our grasp. There would still be arguments that we couldn't win. And we would beat our heads against the wall because of the foolishness that we have to deal with. That's not the will of God. Rather, the will of God is that by doing good, we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Let them see Jesus in you. Let them see him in your character, in your love, in your forgiveness. Let Jesus be seen in you. I'm going to take communion here in just a moment. And as we do, we remind ourselves that in this time, in, our, in some amazing way, we, we do take Christ into ourselves. And I remind you again, we don't take Jesus into ourselves just for ourselves. We take him into us so that we can share him with a world that desperately needs to hear the good news. A world that hears far too much foolishness and needs to hear something good. And beyond that, needs to see something good in the lives of Christians. I'm going to pray, we're going to sing a song, and then we will take together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wisdom that you offer us through your word. I thank you for the book of Proverbs. Lord, over the summer, as we have examined proverb after proverb, these might be thousands of years old, and yet they feel so fresh. Lord, they may have been written to people in a very different world than ours, and yet we have seen our world reflected, our hearts reflected. We've, we've known these proverbs. We've, we've known the truth of these from beyond, from, from before the time that we even read them. And I thank you, Lord, that you desire to be known by us, that you do not make yourself to be a mystery and keep yourself unknown. And thank you that, that you call us near and you promise to always meet us. And you've called us near through this bread that represents the body of your son broken for us, the blood, the cup that represents the blood that was shed. Lord, let us never forget that when, when we needed to know you, you came near. There might be people in our lives who need to know you also. Let's make sure we go near to them. Let's make sure we stay close, Lord, and, uh, and that they can see your son's love and his character through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.